And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Tom Friedman is a certifiably brilliant journalist and public intellectual. Uh, No one has written more compellingly over a long period of time about the Middle East, about climate change, and a whole host of issues that go to our society, our culture, and our world. He came by the Institute of Politics the other day to talk about his new book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. And we sat down later to talk about his life, his career, and just what he means by the age of accelerations and what we do about it. Tom Friedman, welcome. Thanks. Oh, always good to be with you. And uh, we just came from a brilliant presentation uh, at the Institute of Politics uh, uh, um, about your new book, which we will discuss uh, later because it's very, very relevant right now. Uh, but I want to talk about you. Great. I mean, we all know who you are now, three-time yeah. Pulitzer Prize winner and honored public intellectual columnist for the New York Times. But you... Uh, you didn't spring from uh, from uh, your your uh, beginnings uh, that way. Tell me a little bit about growing up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. So I, I was I was born in Minneapolis on the North Side, um, uh, 1953, and my parents were part of the great uh, Jewish immigration exodus. Uh, from the North well, your side. folks, they weren't immigrants themselves. I know. They were both born in Minneapolis, too, actually. Yeah, and where my, did your, when did your my, family come well, over here? My uh, turn of the century, basically. Mm-hmm. My uh, great-grandparents, who I knew, they passed away when I was, when I was quite young. Um, uh, but my parents moved out to St. Louis Park, this uh, big sort of little, big suburb, small town outside of Minneapolis. Uh, in 1958. Uh, six. I was born in 53. Uh, I grew up there, went to public schools uh, with the same group of kids that today are still my best friends. Uh, went to St. Louis Park High. My life, um, David, really uh, changed when I was in 10th grade. I wanted to be a professional golfer, basically. Uh, you still play up. golf, Yeah, I still right? play golf a, a, I think a you lot. played a few rounds with the president, I played right? with. I got to play with the president uh, once. It was Now, what's your handicap? Fun. I'm a five handicap, yeah. yeah. I, I, so I let's, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, he's leaving office. We can reveal secrets. Right. You're a better golfer yes, than he right. is. <laughs> Especially early on. He's gotten better, he tells yeah. me, since we played. But, yes. Uh, so, um, By the way, he bowled, he bowled a 37 in Altoona during the 2008 campaign, which became a huge <laughs> issue, and now he's got his, he's had his own bowling alley oh, for, really? for the right? last eight years, and he's become a pretty proficient bowler. So I'm sure he you challenged him, I and did. he he he'd probably he, catch up with you along he, the way. Uh, here. He's a lefty too, and yeah. you know golf was not really designed for lefties, but there's some good lefty players like Phil Mickelson. But anyways, uh, I wanted to be a professional golfer, and then in tenth grade, two things happened to me. One, I had a, a legendary uh, journalism teacher at my high school, Hattie Steinberg, and she really turned me on to journalism. Had she been a journalist? Uh, she was, uh, no, she always taught journalism uh, from, uh, she was from Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, but I, uh, when she passed away, I wrote a column about her called My Favorite Teacher, yes. and it's still the most email column I've ever written. It turns out yeah. everybody's had a favorite teacher. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, I had yeah. Mrs. Roth in, <laughs> in, in first and third grade who exposed us, like little kids to, this was during the Civil Rights Movement, King. Yeah. Uh, all the issues of the day. That was some of my first exposure to the New York Times. Yeah. And Mine too. It was actually in her class. She taught yeah. me that a journalist starts their day reading the New York Times, which was then mailed a day later, basically, uh, to Minneapolis or St. Louis Park. Anyways, in December of that year, it, um, my older sister had gone on a junior abroad to Tel Aviv University. And um, uh, Now, were you guys uh, a religious family? We were uh, sort of just modern, conservative. I wouldn't describe it as religious, but a, a conservative Jewish family, sort of in the mainstream then. Um, and uh, over that Christmas, my parents took me to Israel. Um, and it was the first time I'd been on an airplane. And it was the first time I'd been out of the state of Minnesota, except for excursions into Wisconsin for summer camp. And I don't know, maybe I'd have gone to China first or Greece first. I'd uh, be something else. But uh, the Middle East just captured me. So Why? In, um, uh 
I don't know. It was so different. It was exotic. I, I do believe in a previous life I was a bizarre merchant somewhere, you know. Uh, but anyways, all three summers of high school, I went back and I lived on a kibbutz in Israel. And Israel just took over my life then. You know, remember, this is 1968, yeah. post-67 war, the kind of heroic Israel of that time. I know? just want to tell you that um, when I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune, I uh, I finagled a trip to Israel to write feature stories. This is when yeah. newspapers had budgets. Yes, right, exactly. And another yeah. reporter and I uh, said, send us uh, – and let us write a series of feature stories. And we had yeah. a bureau chief yeah. there, uh, Jonathan Broder. Was sure, there. I remember, yeah. But, uh, but uh, I stayed, I was there for a month. And, you know, I, I come from a Jewish family. My yeah. father was a Jewish immigrant. But uh, I was taken so much that I actually thought about uh, wow. staying. Yeah. And uh, the reason was, at that time, there was still this pervasive sense of um, things being more about life and death and every day being mm-hmm. worth living and the material sort of culture that had that so defined America wasn't yeah. there then it was really much more it, there was a romanticism yeah. still there was a sense of experimentation frontier there was yeah. a frontier there yeah you know, it was very exciting well back in 68 it was even more so and so yeah. I lived in a kibbutz all three summers of high school. So 10th grade really changed my life. I got interested in journalism in the Middle East and was interested in those ever after, basically. Um, I then uh, started taking Arabic as a freshman in college and uh, started at the University of Minnesota, did a semester at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and at the American University in Cairo. Uh, got a Marshall scholarship to go to Oxford uh, Graduate School, but I uh, to study. Uh, you were sort of, you did a couple of years of Brandeis. I did my graduate from Brandeis ultimately. I was interested. Yeah. I was interested because I read that you uh, perhaps you wrote that uh, that you you were. Uh, you confronted some skepticism on the part of your classmates because you had gone to Egypt. Yes, and absolutely. You had studied yeah. Egypt and you spoke yeah, I studied Arabic. Arabic. Yeah, and uh, this uh, offended some of your absolutely. Jewish classmates exactly. at Brandeis. I, I had to deal with that um, sort of very you know intense uh, Zionist group that um, at that time you know we didn't even have an American embassy uh, in Cairo. It was after the seventy three war, and um, uh, so I, I, I I've been. I learned at a very young age, you know, just about uh, how to talk about that issue, how to how to defend yourself, how to defend your views, you know. Um, and uh, anyways, I, I spent actually my first year in England at the School of Oriental and African Studies uh, in London, and that's where um, I met my wife Anne, who was uh, doing her uh, master's degree at the London School of Economics. And I really got my start in journalism in 1975. Uh, Anne and I were walking down the street in London, and this is really how I got started, truly, because um, I'd been on my high school paper. I did a little college, but not much. Um, and uh, Jimmy Carter was running against Gerald Ford. And uh, we were walking down the streets, and the London Evening Standard, you know, they have those blaring headlines, you mm-hmm. know, Brad to Jen, we're finished, you know, whatever. Yes, yeah. and, that's still true. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, the blaring headline was, um, Carter to Jews, colon, if elected, I promise to fire Dr. K. And I stopped my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I said, um, look at that. Um, Jimmy Carter's running for president, and he's trying to win Jewish votes by promising to fire the first-ever Jewish secretary of state. Isn't that odd? And um, yeah, I, don't know what, I don't know what possessed me, but I went back to my dorm room, and I wrote a column about it. Um, my then girlfriend, now wife, was from Des Moines, Iowa. Happened to be um, uh, neighbors of Gilbert Cranberg, who was the editorial page editor of the Des Moines Register. And she took it home on vacation, on break. She gave it to him. Hmm. He liked it and printed it on a half page of the Des Moines Register. And they paid me fifty dollars. Yeah, I and remember those I, days. That's right. And I thought that was the most amazing thing. I had been walking down the street. I had an opinion. I wrote it up, and someone paid me fifty dollars. And and I was hooked ever after. And you went to work for the UPI. For- yeah. So what happened was then I actually wrote um, ten op-ed pieces for the Des Moines Register and then the Minneapolis Star and Tribune while I was at Oxford, and that was my 
sort of pile of clips. Mm -hmm. So when I went to apply for a job, I applied. I was in London. I got a degree in Arabic and Middle East studies. I started a classic British Arabist education at St. Anthony's, you know, um, has Lawrence of Arabia's papers. And uh, I applied at AP and UPI in London on Fleet Street. And AP said, kid, you've never covered a two-alarm fire. Right. You know, you've never covered a city hall meeting. You got these op-ed pieces. Yeah. But UPI, being UPI, kind of Avis to APs Hertz, said, well, take a chance on the kids studied Arabic. There's an Iranian revolution. They seem to have the same squiggles, you know, and uh, we can teach you how to cover a fire if you can write op-ed pieces, you know. And so they took a chance on me and hired me in in 1978. I have a a, a parallel, less lofty (laughs) story. When I was here at the University of Chicago and uh, back at that time, I always say that nobody wanted to talk about anything that happened after the year 1800. And I was very interested in politics. Yeah. You, so you got writing. your BA here. B, BA here. And, in, uh, uh, in what? In, in political Thanks. science. Uh, uh, I don't think I'll, I'll be remembered for the scholarship I turned in during that period because <laughs> I was writing for newspapers. Sure. And I, got a, I walked into the Hyde Park Herald and talked them into hiring me as a political columnist when I was 18. <laughs> and by the time I graduated, I really knew yeah. everything about Chicago politics. Interesting. And I went to my city editor. They, I got an internship at the Tribune. They hired me. And the editor said to me, the city editor said, you know, we could put you on politics right now because you know all about all the Byzantine ward stuff. He said, but you don't know how to be a reporter. Yeah. So you're going on nights. Huh. And I spent two and a half years on nights. Probably the best education I could Absolutely. have. Absolutely. And, you know, really exposed me to things I never would have seen, as well as taught me how Basic to reporting. cover breaking That's right, on story. deadline. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So you did some of those. I those did a things. year in London mm-hmm. um, for UPI. I covered taxi strikes, and I, I covered a lot of oil stuff because OPEC was just emerging yeah. in 1979. The Iranian Revolution was happening. And anyways, I was on Fleet Street for a year at UPI, and the number two man in Beirut got shot. The number two man at UPI uh, in the ear by a man robbing a grocery store hmm. on Hummer Street, or jewelry store on Hummer Street, excuse me. And um, uh, he said, I want to go home. I don't want to collect $200. I don't want to pass go. Get me out of here. And uh, UPI came to me. I was 25. And I said, would you like to go to Beirut? It's the middle of a civil war and be our number two correspondent. And I turned to my now wife, um, then, then wife and now wife. We'd just gotten married uh, from Des Moines, Iowa and said, we're going to Beirut. And so went off to wow. Beirut in 1979 in the middle of the Civil War. And she didn't say, the hell we are. No, no. She uh, she knew when she married me that was part of the deal. It was part of our marriage contract that we were going to spend some time in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And um, so went to Beirut in May 1979 for UPI. First night we were there at the Commodore Hotel, I heard a gun fired. And actually, it was the first gunshot I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah, and I heard a lot. That's of them the afterwards. difference between Minneapolis and rural Absolutely. Minnesota. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we were in Beirut for two years for them. The New York Times um, I noticed my work. They offered me a job, brought me back to New York for a year as a business reporter. Got interested in business because I'd been covering OPEC too, and um, uh, then sent me back to Beirut in April 1982. Yeah, pretty eventful. Yeah, time. and Israel invaded Lebanon six weeks later, and it suddenly became this amazing story. I covered the embassy bombing, the Israeli invasion. Sabra and Shatila, the Marine bombing. Uh, I, I covered all the stories. It was an incredible drama. And, um, uh, you know, from a journalist's point of view, uh, being in the, you know, quote unquote, right place at the right time. How did you, and you won your first Pulitzer Prize? I won it for my coverage of Sabra and Shatila. For that. Yeah. You, um, and, and how was it adapting to war? Yeah. War coverage? Um, you know, it was uh, it was challenging. Um, what I always tell people in retrospect, what no, I nobody really kill, when you golf, nobody you don't get killed playing golf. No, absolutely. Although I did play golf in Beirut a lot. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, they, they had a thirteen hole course that actually the driving range faced a Palestinian shooting range. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the British ambassador always used to say, "It's the only course you're happy to be in a bunker." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, but uh, you know, it was an adjustment. But what I um, cherish about it. And it's funny, yesterday I was just with some dear friends from Beirut of those days. The Lebanese ambassador to the UN, Noaf Salam, uh, is really my oldest Lebanese friend, and we spent a lot of time together. And um, we were all in the Titanic together. And so I have a special bond with yeah, those people because we went I'm through sure. a searing experience together. And what I um, appreciated about it was um, you know, you really only understand how molecules behave at very high temperatures. And the spectrum of human emotions you get to see in a war is so much wider than you get to see covering the White House or the State Department, you know. And so I learned more about myself and other people, what they're capable of, both good and evil, 
uh, in those four years, five years in Beirut than I ever possibly could. I actually think the White House is, uh, it's an honor to cover the White House in certain ways, one of the least satisfying. You you covered the White House for for a year. For one year, and and Howell Reigns of the Times, our great editor, used to say, None dare call it journalism. Yeah. You know, you're basically um, there waiting to be fed. It's a cross between babysitting and um, just, uh, I'm not even sure what the other thing is, but it's not um, satisfying yeah. at all. I did it for one year. I covered the first year of Bill Clinton, which was Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, I have to tell <laughs> you. And, um, but that was enough for me. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's going to be babysitting in the next administration. There, and if it is, there's going to be a lot of spanking. I oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I shudder to think what it'll be like. So, uh, just turning back to the to your experience, Beirut. You know, we had um, Steve Kerr on the show. Uh, so I on, covered on the podcast. Yes, I covered his dad's assassination. Yeah, yeah, and it was really riveting to hear yes. him talk about his dad yeah. and that experience, and the fact that his dad returned the, to Beirut to take over right. the American University there at a time when he knew right it was dangerous that it was dangerous, right, yeah. and he was frightened, yeah. but he felt honor bound yeah. to. Comp- to, to, yes. to follow yeah. through on his commitment. And shortly after he got there, oh, yeah. he was assassinated. So I told the story in the book because Malcolm, first of all, because I had studied Middle East studies, Malcolm Kerr was a real titan in the field. And um, what I loved about him was not only his insight, he wrote the classic work on the Arab Cold War, um, but uh, he was a very balanced guy when it came to Israel, Arab stuff, you know, and, and you can see that in Steve, you can see it in, in mm-hmm. his mom. So um, we had been at their house for dinner um, uh, a few weeks before, and I never forget, you know, Beirut's a very conspiratorial place. Everything's a conspiracy there. And we're having dinner. Well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean no one's asking. No, absolutely. You know? But we're having dinner uh, over at their house, my, my wife Anne and I with Anne and, and Malcolm and a few other couple. And there was a terrible rainstorm broke out. And I remember Malcolm saying, Riley, do you think the Syrians did it? <laughs> um, you know. And uh, lo and behold, tragically, a few weeks later, I, I uh, got the call um, from the police radio that um, he'd been shot. I ran over to the university. I was in the hallway where he was shot. I can still see the bullet holes mm-hmm. in the wall. And, uh, and I wrote that story. And when the New York Times did the reconstruction, you know, just a few weeks ago with Steve, uh, it was, I, I had no idea they were doing it, but I picked up the paper and I discovered a little quote from my news story that day, you know, what had happened. You, uh, you've probably lost more than one uh, oh, yeah, friend. Absolutely. Uh, uh-huh. In these conflicts. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you cover the, the assassination of a, of a friend? You know, um, uh, obviously, you know, your first thing that takes over is just instinct and, you know, you, you, you cover it. Um, but, um, you know, the way I've compartmentalized Beirut and Jerusalem, I saw an enormous amount of violence there, too, and new people who had been um, killed. Uh, as I say, is that um, I, I simply dealt with it as um, not in a purient way, but I knew that I was having an emotional experience that was really unusual, and I was getting an insight into how I behave, how I reacted to those kind of things, how other people did, who did what, how how did you build resilience in that kind of situation, um, and it um, it grew me up fast. This little, you know, whenever people, whenever I describe my encounter with the Middle East, Beirut and Jerusalem, it's, it's always a Minnesota boy goes to Beirut. And what do I mean by that? As we'll talk about, I know later, I grew up in a real community. Mm-hmm. And people say to me, what did you see in Beirut? I say, I saw a community breakdown. Mm-hmm. Other people might say something else. I say, I saw everybody going to their own confessional schools, dividing lines, sandbags. I came from the embrace of an incredibly pluralistic community and then I went to a place and I saw it all break down. We will talk about that because I think that um, this retreat to tribalism yeah. is something that we're seeing all over the world, including in our own country, and the breakdown of community. And it's probably the single th- most threatening uh, totally. thing that we face here in this modern age. And we'll talk about why we're there yeah. when we talk but about But let me just say book. one thing yeah. about that because it, it's a backdrop to and maybe a segue to talking about the book in this sense that – some psych- I want to segue too quickly. Okay, I, I don't. A few other things, but I want to just say one there, thing but, while we're on it because yeah. it, it's so appropriate. Which is, um, some psychiatrists would put me on the couch now, and I would say, "Doctor, here's really what happened." Um, so I spent the first really 
25, 30 years of my journalism career, pushing all these Middle East hopes, Oslo, yes. Arab Spring, Iraq. I, was, I hoped it would come yes. out as a democracy. I, I, all I of, ask you about all of these things. I, I really pushed all those rocks. And in the end, um, they all came tumbling down uh, over me, and I got steamrolled. And so uh, I came home, and, um, uh, and I uh, started writing about nation-building in America, and uh, something and President Obama yes. resonated. That yes. was why I really felt a bond yes. with him. Yes. I, all that energy I was putting into the Middle East, I was going to bring it home to America. And then I discovered we were turning into Sunnis and Shiites. Mm-hmm. That the same kind of tribalism that had driven me out of there uh, was now infecting Washington, D.C. And so what I basically did and what really in some ways stimulated this book, X, is that I decided to go home to the one source of optimism and community where I, where I started, first of all, just to see if it was true or did I just make it all up? And I, In other words, I, I, I idealized your, exactly, your hometown. That I idealized it. And I went back home and I didn't make it up. You know, I went and interviewed my teachers and my, my colleagues and, and, and uh, the kids I went to school with. And it was as remarkable today as it was then. And, and therefore, could I draw lessons from it that I could share? So my politics really shrank, you know, mm-hmm. from, from that Middle East heroic uh, peacemaking back to Washington, back. I, I, I ended up where I started. I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Tom Friedman. You mentioned Oslo. Uh, I was in uh, I was in Israel in 1994 with a group, uh, and uh, we visited with three leaders. We visited with Bibi Netanyahu, who was the leader of the opposition mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, we we met with Shimon Peres, who I believe was the foreign minister, minister probably. Mm-hmm. And uh, and with Itzhak Rabin, who was uh, who was the prime minister, and the same a person in the group asked the same question to each, hmm. which was, uh, "What are you going to tell the settlers if the Oslo Accord goes through, hmm. who have to leave their homes?" And uh, Bibi said, "Well, I won't have to tell them anything because they won't have to leave their homes hmm. uh, if I'm the prime minister." Perez said, in a way that I didn't think he realized sounded as. Um, as it did, but he said, I'll tell them they're free to stay under Palestinian rule. Hmm. Uh, and Rabin said, I will tell, I would tell them, he said sort of wearily, as was his way, right, yeah. I will tell them that too much blood has been shed. We've lost too many of our children. And uh, peace has a price. Yeah. And this is the price. And you could see why he was the leader. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I raise that because I know you were gone by 1994. But I was going back regularly, and I saw Rabin a week before he was killed. I always think, I, I've thought since that time that yeah. the uh, young man who killed him uh, was probably the most destructive yeah. person in history since yeah. the, the person who shot the Archduke Duke Ferdinand uh, to touch off uh, World War One. Yeah. Um, what was lost uh, when Robin was assassinated, and uh, where are we today? And is it recoverable? Is the is the is the prospect of peace between Israel and the Palestinians? Is it is it a lost I uh, hope? So what was lost were were three things. Um, uh, actually, the first was a, a unique leader. Who blended what um, uh, my friend Leon Weasel here called um, he was a bastard for peace. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, he was a progressive. He believed in peace, but Israelis trusted him. Yes, because they 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 know their general. He was a general. They knew he wouldn't sell them down the river. That this wasn't because he had some illusions about Palestinians. They'd all converted. They all loved it. You know, he 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 knew just the region. He knew what he was doing, and so they trusted him. He was a bastard for peace. Um, what was lost was that unique balance, which very few people have. Sharon had it too. Um, uh, he was more bastard than yes. peacemaker, but he got out of Gaza and really evolved. Of evolved. You know, he started exactly. the second intifada. Right, that's right. And then and he, he evolved. evolved into uh... exactly. And um, but was lost was time, because um, when Rabin was killed, I would guess there were about um, fifty to seventy thousand settlers, something like that. Today, there's almost half a million, you know. Um, and so you could think about that question you raised. What do we tell these people when we have to move them? 50,000 people. Um, uh, remember, it took Israelis 50,000 police and military to remove 8,000 people from Gaza. 
So if you're talking about four hundred to 500000 in the West Bank, it's actually inconceivable. And uh, what does the these – I know you wrote a fairly uh, strong uh, – fairly yes. strong. <laughs> it was a very, very strong column recently yeah. about uh, the Trump – emerging yes. Trump approach to the – to that to that issue and to the Middle East and his appointment of David Friedman yes. as the ambassador. What do you think that means in terms of um, not just the peace process, but the pros- but the prospect of stability? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, just a little warning to your listeners, Zach, that I can ruin any dinner party, and I do weddings and bar- <laughs> I do weddings and bar mitzvahs. So what you're about to get is going to be uh, uh, undiluted. I believe the right. two state solution is over. Um, uh, I believe we're locked into a one-state situation. Um, it, it's still salvageable in the sense that if Israel offered Palestinians radical autonomy, I think you could imagine um, some kind of uh, stable outcome, at least for a while. But um, if if Trump appoints uh, his bankruptcy lawyer, David Friedman, who is uh, on record uh, proudly, as saying that um, Jews who believe in a two-state solution are the equivalent of Jews who collaborated with the Nazis in concentration camps, which, as I said in that column, is actually the most vile thing I've ever heard one Jew say to another. And I've covered this issue my whole adult life. By the way, I have a lot of friends on the Israeli right, people I talk to all the time. I've never heard anyone talk that way. Not about me, knowing that I'm, at least to my you face. You get the yeah. sense that he may be to the right of the Israeli right. Oh, I actually think that this, if he is appointed ambassador, first of all, it's going to be a huge problem for Bibi for the first time. The yeah. United States will have an ambassador to Israel to his right. Right. Um, and I always thought it was useful as much as he didn't get along with Obama. Oh, it was he useful needed in terms Obama. of controlling his right to Absolutely. say, you know, I'd love to do this. That's right. But, but that bastard Obama right. won't let me do right. it. That was his favorite line. You know what I mean? And so uh, I don't think Bibi's thought this through at all. I think there's been a rush to embrace Trump and, and all of this. That is a madness to me. But I, I do believe the two-state solution is basically over. I think it— Do it, you think it, that it was wrong for the U.S. to abstain at the United Nations? Oh, no, it's absolutely right. Um, it, was, it was not only right now to try to administer one last jolt of reality, but if I were Obama and Kerry, um, I want to be on record. Uh, as we truly tried, I thought Kerry's speech was actually a remarkable yeah. historical document because yeah, yeah. he went through the whole record in a very balanced way. Now, we are here for two reasons. We're here because um, Bibi Netanyahu um, uh, talked about wanting to have a two-state solution and never once put a plan on the table. You know that because the president had to deal with that for the last eight years. So what does that really say? But we're also here, I have to say, because the Palestinians yes. um, uh, um, basically had a leader, uh, Salam Fayyad, yeah. who um, I was a, a very— a, a, a lot of people were really respected. about him, yeah. And, um, and what was his idea? It was, let's be like the Zionists. Let's build our institutions first, judges, courts, police, economy, governing institutions. And then once we've got the institutions, then we declare a state. And um, uh, the current Palestinian leadership pushed him out because um, they were much more comfortable with that kind of corrupt cronyism you see in every Arab country today. And um, unfortunately, the Israelis and we, I would say, let that happen. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't have. Um, we and the Europeans, because the Europeans, you know, pay for the occupation. They actually fund the Palestinian Authority. And the Europeans should have said, if Fayyad goes, our money goes. I think that he was that important. I actually coined a term I called Fayadism, a whole different kind of Arab leadership that says, judge me by my performance, not by whether I am against the Jews, whether I'm against the Americans, whether I'm shouting louder than him. Judge me on whether I get the sewers fixed, the roads clean, the lights working, the police and the jobs. And Fayadism died. Yeah. And um, and so the Palestinians, if I were the prime minister of Israel today, I wouldn't be giving them a state. They're in no position to govern themselves. If Israel got out of the West Bank, Hamas is there tomorrow. Um, and so you've obviously got to nurture something totally different now. But um, uh, I, I always say to Bibi, you won. You won. Javier, you, you won. You are now the father of one state Israel. And that's how I like to refer to him. I like to now refer to him as the prime minister of Israel-Palestine. What's the future for Israel as a – how can Israel be a Jewish state and a democratic state yeah. uh, if in the they land have of large Israel, numbers all... of uh, – uh, uh, growing numbers of Palestinians yeah. and Arabs? Well, you and... know, going back to Beirut to Jerusalem, I wrote, Israel wants three things. It wants a state in all the land of Israel. It wants a Jewish state, and it wants a democratic state. In the real world, you only get two out of three. 
you can be in all the land of Israel and be Jewish, but you can't be democratic. And you can be in all the land of Israel and democratic, but you can't be Jewish. And you can be Jewish and democratic, but only if you don't take all the land. And they have to choose, and they have refused to choose. And the essence of leadership is choosing, and it's a great failure of leadership. So what happens when leadership fails is the most dynamic force in the society takes it, it wins because it has the most energy, and that's the settler movement. So they just keep on winning, dragging Israel deeper and deeper. And Netanyahu, as I say, is a leader who is forever dog paddling in the middle of the Rubicon. He never crosses. He's just always dog paddling in the middle saying, I'm coming, I'm, I'm coming over, so I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming. But he's actually just dog paddling. He stays always in the middle of the Rubicon. But he's managed to stay afloat for several decades. He's ma- managed to stay afloat. He's really the longest serving prime minister, maybe already is, more than Ben-Gurion. And uh, David, if he, if he retires tomorrow and you said, you got to write his political biography, honest to God, I don't know what I'd say. Other than you that, he was survived. For, he survived. Yes. Yeah, he survived at the cost. I Is, think, do you of see anybody? Story. Last question on this: uh, Do you see anybody emerging? I mean, he yeah. won last time, though he was in a weakened right. state. Absolutely, uh, in part because there was no there was real no, opposition, uh, no figure who could at once point the, the way in a different direction and still give Israelis assurance on security. You need to be a bastard for peace, and uh, the left in Israel hasn't been able to produce a bastard for peace. By the way, you know, this... But there are a lot of people uh, out of uh, the uh, military. There are a lot of people right. out of the intelligence sector. Well, there. what Bibi did was pass a law that said ex-military people can't go into politics. Now, for much longer, I forget, it was like four or five years. So he sidelined all the natural uh, rivals for him. Labor is, uh, is like so many center-left parties today, kind of lost into where it's going. Um, not that the right has much dynamism either, but um, people trust him at the gut level that he won't um, sell out the state. And, and when you live in a crazy neighborhood... One of the you know, issues is that all of these uh, bigger-than-life revolutionary figures have passed from exactly. the scene. And so there's the no Benderians Robin, there's no, no Sharon. That's right, there's no yeah. Sharon, there's none yeah. of them. And so we've got these midgets. Right. And um, uh, the result is just drift. So the drift is toward one state. And I'm afraid that's what it's going to become. And, this touches uh, on a, another issue, and it, and it gets to your Iraq point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is we as Americans, we have this notion that democracy is something that all, everyone should yearn for yes. and everyone should practice. And I, you know, I, I mentioned my father was an immigrant, yeah. so I cherish That's it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I cherish yeah. it. Yeah. But, uh, but it requires, it's hard work to establish right. those institutional pillars that are Christ's necessary liberty, to make that, democracy right. work. Exactly. And uh, what we saw in Iraq where we had great aspirations yes. for creating democracy, that tribe over, overwhelmed right. Uh, those democratic impulses, and that seems to be true across the region. The, the region. So, you know, the Iraq War was probably my biggest um, mistake as a journalist. Um, uh, some would say um, uh, I feel um, uh, nothing but pain um, and regret for the terrible human cost, American and Iraqi, and the terrible treasure that we have spent there. But I also. Um, I'm not going to apologize, Axe, for feeling that pluralism, you know, some kind of democratic pluralism is the only way to go forward there. And so um, uh, I was wrong in thinking that it was possible. I am not wrong in thinking that it's necessary. And um, uh, and and that and I see it even more today. Necessary, but not possible. Is right. not a happy, it, not a happy place to be. But yeah. I'm I, I'm just saying that um, if you want to talk sort of seriously, I say to people about Iraq. But I I couldn't look. My life. Uh, uh, I, I had I been against the war, I, I wouldn't be carrying this terrible sense of real guilt. I feel for having supported well, something. You're not you know. alone. I'm sure. No, I, I'm not. I, I want to be very honest about it. You know, I feel terrible about it, but at the same time, I look at this region, and it, the big mistake I made um, is thinking that the alternative to uh, autocracy was democracy, and it turned out the alternative to autocracy was disorder, mm-hmm. and that's really what we've seen in Syria. It's what we've seen in Iraq. And that you need a much more gradualist evolution. Now, the Bush administration, and I'm not um, excusing myself for this, but they messed this up 
12 ways to Sunday. I mean, disbanding the Iraqi army, um, you know, uh, the, the craziest things they did, motivated, by the way, by ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, some of what you see now in, in Trump, just a different ideology. Um, debothification the way they did. They basically completely they destroyed stripped, any institutions. They destroyed the institutions and stripped the Sunni Muslims of any dignity. Yeah. Well, yeah. you got a backlash. I mean, any, any wonder, you know. Um, but uh, it's a painful period for our country, uh, uh, much more importantly, um, and, and uh, most importantly for our country, for Iraqis, and just professionally, worst mistake I, I made. John Brennan was here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he just last week actually and he he said that he and he was involved obviously yeah. from the beginning there yeah uh he said that um the history of the middle east at least where we are today would have been significantly different uh, how different would it have been had we not made the decision to go in and uh, take out I, I think Hussein. Iraq would look exactly like Syria today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there would have been a Shiite revolt. They tried um, uh, after the um, uh, 1991 you know, invasion of Kuwait. The Shiites tried to revolt, and that's when we let – that was the first Bush administration. We let Saddam use his helicopters to mow them down. I have every reason and confidence to believe that what happened in Syria, remember, which we had nothing to do with, happened spontaneously in the wake of the Arab Spring. I have every reason to believe the same thing would have happened in Iraq. And just on Syria, we just wouldn't have been involved. I want to turn to your book. Uh, You talk about painful things. I I know that as the president leaves, uh, the 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 developments in Syria are something that he will think about for the rest of his life. Do you think that there was a different path in Syria that would have produced a significantly different result? So my evolution on the I, I went through an evolution on this, um, uh, and including with him, and, and we had a, ultimately a falling out over it um, because I, uh, at first, was because of it's so good we're having the conversation in this order because of my experience in Iraq. I just said I'm never going to advocate putting American troops anywhere mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, uh, not only because it went so bad, because I, I learned in Iraq we don't even know what we're doing. You know what I mean? It's in some of well, these and places. The big, and the question is, what happens once you're there? Exactly. How do you get Absolutely. out? Exactly. If it, there's no institutional ba- basis uh, foundation, to do it. yeah. But I'll tell you when I changed my mind, and uh, I in. A couple of encounters with the president, you know, we we um, uh, went back and forth on this. Um, when I saw the refugee outflow from Europe starting to destroy, when 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 I saw the refugee outflow from Syria starting to destroy Europe, mm-hmm. and um, that massive refugee outflow from Syria and Iraq, coupled with what was going on in Africa, we, because we op- we also uncorked Libya. Libya was like a cork on Africa. And those two things, I believe, have had a huge impact in weakening the fabric of the European Union and producing all this nationalist populist backlash around Europe. And so where I came out was we should be um, – I stepped back and said, wait a minute. We we had 300,000 troops in Europe for 50 years because we thought Europe as the other great center of democratic capitalism was a strategic asset for the United States, literally our wingman in the world. Um if we put 5,000 troops in a no-fly zone in western Syria and 5,000 troops, by the way, as NATO, they wouldn't even have to all be American, to, to control the coast of Libya and create some order there for, for the refugees. And by the way, with no exit plan. We didn't have an exit plan when we put 300,000 troops in Germany. We said we're going to be here as long as we have to be. But they uh, weren't in they weren't in a war zone. No, no, they weren't. And and um uh and there would have been losses, but you know, to protect Europe, uh I think that 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 would have been a really um a valuable investment and that's when I parted company with the president. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that um he, and, he would of course argue that 5,000 you you would have had to ultimately employ more troops and um it, you you would have been in a situation where you had this dystopia right. that you were governing That's right. essentially and uh, by and the that, way and the reason i think that that was so troubling was because this country was scarred by you know more than a decade of, exactly and i and i know and and i just want to say by the way i have enormous respect for his side of the argument too where he and I parted company is that I happen to think every one of I could make his argument, I think, as well as he could. And um, he could probably make my He'd argument. probably invite you to do that. Right. <laughs> and he could make my argument as yeah. well as yeah, I yes, could. Yes, yes, yes. The one thing that bothered me, I have to say, 
is he presented my side of the argument as a bunch of foreign policy hacks who have been in Washington too long. That um, it was like we were the blob, you know, the kind of foreign policy blob that always wants to intervene. And he was the smart guy. He And that was where I, I resented that, just mm-hmm. at, at the intellectual level, that I can have respect for his side of the argument. And he evinced very little respect for ours. And I think there were real issues for me, this European question, mm-hmm. that I think the, the the weakening of the EU is is partly on his tab. I mean, it's also a huge problem for the EU. It's 90% on them, but I think it's partly on Obama's tab also. So all I was saying was, um, this is an impossible choice, but don't tell me I'm a stupid foreign policy blob just because I come out here. You know what I mean? And that, and I resented that actually. Well, I know that the you know, president's going to have a lot of time to listen think to podcasts now. Of, yes, right. So hopefully, yeah. you have expressed yourself directly to him because yeah. he'll be listening to this. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Tom Friedman. <laughs> I want to talk about this new book of yours. We could talk for hours Please. about each of your books, but this new one really struck me because uh, I've been really, really concerned about this sense that. Technology in particular, uh, but all there are a number of forces afoot that are accelerating at such a pace that w- they're outstripping our, abil- uh, our ability to understand them yes. and to grapple with them and to adjust and uh, uh, adapt to them. And you lay this out in extraordinarily thoughtful ways in this book. So talk a little bit about that, about where you... Uh, where you think we are and what and and what is the way out right so I think we're in the middle of three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet, which in the book I identify as the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So Mother Nature is climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth. Um, uh, Moore's Law is that the speed and power of microchips will double every 24 months, which is really the driver of all um, uh, technology change. Named after Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, he coined this in 1965, and it's basically held up for 52 years. And um, the market for me is digital globalization, not your grandfather's globalization. That's containers on ships, but everything that's now, like this podcast, being digitized and globalized. Mm-hmm. And people I know will listen to this, uh, you know, way beyond our borders here. So I think From those... your mouth to there, yeah. <laughs> I hope so. And so I think these accelerations, um, actually, they aren't just... Um, uh, uh, changing the world. They're fundamentally reshaping mm-hmm. the world. No, I think I, we live know, in revolutionary times. I do too. And we're, they're reshaping politics, geopolitics, ethics, um, the workplace, and community. And so the first part of the book is about these accelerations, how they work. And the second part is about how they're reshaping these realms. Now, to your point, one of my favorite quotes in the book is from John Kelly. He ran the Watson IBM Cognitive Computer Project. And at one point he said to me, you know, Tom, uh, when you buy a new car, it always comes with a sticker on the rearview mirror. It says objects in your rear view may be closer than they appear. He said that actually belongs on your front windshield. It's what's coming at us now is closer than you think. And the other thing that really struck me is I began acts, I began living the book. In this sense, I felt like I had a butterfly net and I was chasing a butterfly. And every time I got close, it moved. So I had to call Brian Krasanich, the CEO of Intel, three different times just to make sure in the space of three because years, things, are things were so changing quickly. so fast. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to Doug Cunning, the founder of Hadoop, at least six times in writing this book. Chris Wanstroth, the founder of GitHub, I visited them twice. And every time I went back, it was like I had an odometer in the book. We have 12 million users. We have 13 million users. Yeah. We have 14. So I was actually living the acceleration myself. And I finally had to close the book, trap it in ink and paper, uh, because it would just would have kept you know just going and going and going. And, it's that fast. Yeah. And uh, who knows how long ink and paper will be around. A- absolutely. And so to your point, exactly, I think we're at a point right now where the pace of change is, and I like the way you put it, because it's not only faster than societies, governance, and individuals can adapt, can even understand. Yeah. When you talk about genomics today and some of the stuff and, and bioinformatics, some of the things that are happening today, they're just jaw-dropping. Well, you know, one example is this uh, issue of trade that played so big in this election. I know you're a yeah, free trader. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, my view is that globalization yeah. is here. I mean, yeah. there, are th- there are things that— Cushion uh, the worst and get the best out of it. You know, you know you, you, you're not going to reverse uh, 
some trends. Yes. But the fact is we're losing more jobs, good-paying jobs, to mechanization, automation. Right. Uh, and uh, I don't know that there's – you know, it's it's easier if you're a political candidate to say that – uh, that China's going to take your job than to say that robot's going to take your Absolutely. job. Absolutely. Because how do you organize against the robots? And in fact, it is uh, 90% about automation um, and 10% about trade, maximum. Um, first of all, I don't have an easy answer. I think we're at, um, so I don't want to um, suggest that I do. And yet I look out and we have 4.7% unemployment. So wait a minute. So, so there's, there's, a, there's clearly, it's very uneven in the sense that, that uh, parts of Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, as we learned in this election, that had been very much dependent on the industrial economy, uh, have been damaged. There's no question about it. But I go up to Minneapolis, my hometown, 2.9% unemployment. So something's going on that's also positive. And what I think is we need to really understand what are the positive things and, and, and inflate them and what are the negative ones and, and try to cushion them. Um, well, and- I think also anticipate, you know, we, we were chatting earlier uh, at Fareed Zakaria on here a mm-hmm. few months ago, and he, talk, he was talking about driverless cars yes. and the fact that they're coming online by the end of this decade, yeah. and there are millions and millions of people in this country who make their living driving, driving cars. Yeah. So where are they going in this economy? Right. And what thought are we putting into that? Uh, it seems to me to be really what our campaign right. should, should be, be about. about. Exactly. And so um, it's funny. I, I was in the airport two days ago um, waiting just to go up to New York, and a guy walks up to me says, um, Mr. Friedman, I run – I'm CEO of – and I don't remember that – a big motel chain. And he just came up to me, just out of the blue, and said, "Now I want you to I want you to answer this question: When we have driverless cars, and you'll be able to get in your car in Washington, program your car to take you to Fifth Avenue in New York, and you can sleep the whole way. It means you don't have to stay in my motel." And I thought, I just said, "I I never thought of that," but I thought it was a very profound question. You know, so people are really now starting to think radical thoughts. Um, my my advice is to find a way to program your car to stay away from uh, Midtown right. yeah. now because Absolutely. it's all blocked it's off from drunk. Trump yeah. Tower. But. It's, um, so uh, the answer is I don't know. All I know is we've been here before. And every time we were here before, we found a creative solution. What is scary about this moment is when we all left the farm, there were factories. When we all left the factories, there were offices and service jobs and knowledge jobs. And so what comes after knowledge and services? It's not immediately obvious. The argument I made in a column the other day with my uh, friend Dove Seidman is that we're going from an economy built around hands to one built around heads, to one that'll more and more be built around hearts. That it'll be about all the things that connect human hearts to one another. And it'll be a very different economy. So what is that, uh, how does, give me, help uh, me picture what that means. Yeah, Yeah. so uh, the example I gave in that column was the fastest growing restaurant chain in America, according to Entrepreneur Magazine in 2015, it's called Paint Night. And Paint Night does um, paint by numbers classes for adults in bars. Because it turns out that, uh, a, people love to have a creative expression, and they don't like to do it alone. They enjoy being in a class, taught by an artist, in a bar, have a drink, socialize. And um, it's just a little example, but the teachers of those classes, the artists, they actually do the drawing that you paint from. Uh, they make um, basically $1,000 a week for three hours' work. It strikes a me night. that the last time we had an industrial revolution, um, a progressive era grew out of that. Right. And government played a role in dealing with the hard edge yes. of that change, uh, providing certain uh, protections for workers, uh, making high school education universal, yes. and so on. Uh, and I think we, we probably need a new iteration yes. of the progressive era, but we have less confidence in government as an institution, which yeah. has been eroded right steadily yeah. for the last 30 or 40 years. Yes. What, what role does government have to play in all of this? Um, so I'm a huge fan of something that uh, President Obama, I thought, you know, stimulated very well. I'm, I like these race to the top programs. Say, I don't know where this is going, but um, we need to think about how we build more jobs around heart. Here's a pile of money. Whichever school system, university, community comes up with the best ideas. So it's government as, a, acting as, as catalyzer, yeah. not saying we know what it is and now I we're agree, going to I put agree. it down. That and was, I, I thought Obama did a great job with that in the Department of Education. Arnie also Duncan. in energy. Exactly. He did, he did great at that. I, I think yeah. there was 
you know, the thing that frustrates me, this is an aside about Obama, is, you know, we had arguments about this because I said to him, I think you're the worst communicating president I've ever covered. I'm sure he took that. He did. Yes, he did. Uh, but I think he's got so much better a story than he was ever, than he ever told himself. I, I, I voted for Obama twice. I do not want my money back. I think it was a very successful administration given the constraints and i wish people how many people know that he doubled mileage standards right and how or doubled or 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 helped catalyze the doubling of renewable energy exactly i mean and by the way these when you double when you tell the auto industry you got to improve three percent every year five percent whatever it was the amount of innovation you drive in all kinds of things you'll never see batteries efficiency you know um uh energy it wasn't just in this healthcare it is exactly where, where they did that they did so much more that was really valuable and there are things i disagreed with it's not like i'm in the tank for this i i say this as a citizen i'm so glad he did these things they're really important but it never got conveyed you know well i i i should be in good conscience i should mention yeah. that i was there for yeah, two right. years and i was i was a communications yeah, person right. so we some argued of the, about some, the time, some, right. some of the blame no, no. some of the blame falls yeah. on me but i think that this is an administration that has a lot to be proud of and um, in things that are really important to me. By the way, TPP, why, why am I so supportive of TPP? Because if you're a liberal, Obama delivered the ultimate liberal trade pack, has labor standards in it, labor union organizing rights, has amazing environmental standards, and, and basically focuses on opening markets to our strength of technology uh, and innovation of science and, and, um, uh, uh, and software. It's it, 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 people denounce this thing without knowing what was in it. Yeah, you know, you, uh, you the closing uh, chapters of your book, as you mentioned, uh, take you back to uh, uh, St. Louis Park. Yes, and uh, talk a little bit about that and the and the notion of community and why that's uh, why that's important. Well, you know, part of it um, began uh, X where I. I'm 63 now. I'm at the end of my career, basically. I mean, I don't know when I'll stop writing, but I'm, I'm not the beginning anymore, that's for sure. And I've often reflected, when was I happiest? When have I been happiest in my life? And I have a wonderful marriage and family, so sort of beyond that. I mean, um, it's, um, it's when I was part of a community. Whether it's that little community in Beirut I told you about, yeah. they were all in the Titanic together. Um, whether um, you know it was the community I lived in in Jerusalem when I was a New York Times reporter there. Whether I was a community guy I grew up with, that that's when I've been happiest, yeah. and I was most happy. The happiest time of my life, um, again outside my marriage and family and everything sure. that I derive from that, is. Those 18 years, I grew up in St. Louis Park and went to school, public school, with the same kids mm-hmm. um, all 18 years. They're still my best friends. Yeah, still I have the alone. same thing. You know, and that, that just puts a smile on my face. Yeah. And um, and the thing that was— Because you had some pretty uh, extraordinary— I, mean, yeah, I grew up in St. Louis Park, you know, in the same sort of rough decade, um, uh, went to the same Hebrew school or lived in the same neighborhood with the Cone brothers, Al Franken, Norm Ornstein, Michael Sandel, uh, Sharon Isbin, the guitarist, Peggy Ornstein, uh, Alan Wiseman, uh, the Hauptman brothers, uh, Dan Wilson, who wrote Someone Like You with Adele. Uh, it was an amazing uh, community, and, and I would t- and we were all— Must have been a hell of a talent show. It was, um, uh, and we were really— Products. Uh, Al Franken went to private school. He was the only one I knew who went to private school. Um, we were. It, it was a you time. You just heard his political career, but go ahead. That's right. Um, it was a time when the word public had such honor attached to it. We had amazing public parks. We had ama- I, I played hockey after school in lighted public hockey rinks. I went to amazing public schools. Um, uh, the only journalism course I've ever taken was at room 313 in St. Louis Park High. And not because mm-hmm. I was that good, but because my teacher was that good. Yeah. Um, we had amazing public education at the University of Minnesota. We all... As Michael Sandel points out in the book, you know, we all went to the same twin stadium. There were no skyboxes. We all sat in the same rain. We all ate the same soggy hot dogs. Um, and that... Um, Tony my, Oliva. Tony Oliva, Rod Carew. That's right. Yes. But I grew up... Um, that had such an effect on me because I grew up in a time and place where politics worked. And I took that optimism into the world. 
that because I saw politics work and I saw partisanship, but I saw partisanship at the end of the day that said you've got to come together and compromise. Minnesota had a great tradition of that as well. You know, I, mean, I, I, I one of my Fraser. early assignments as a reporter yeah. when I was on Nightside, yeah. they called me one night. I was deathly ill. This and, and <laughs> first time I ever was calling in sick, and they said. Uh, Hubert Humphrey is going to die tonight, and we well, want you to go to Minnesota. Interesting. And I said, I'll go. Absolutely, I'll go. Yeah. And I went. And, and what was so striking about it was every single person I talked to said, yeah, I knew I knew and Hubert. Hubert, absolutely. You know? And he knew me. And there was an affection for him and a respect oh. for him. And it was like 13 below zero. Absolutely. And people lined up through the night. And they were Republicans his... and Democrats. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. So you know, I was just up there for my book tour, and I spoke at the Westminster Theater Lecture Series. It's a big um, Protestant church in, in downtown Minneapolis. And uh, Vice President Mondale came and honored me and sat in the first row. And every time I see Fritz, he always says, uh, you know, I still remember I was speaking at the synagogue, and your little mom came up and said, do you know my son? <laughs> you know? And uh, th- it was just that kind of place. And There's what is it like decency. today? Um, the amazing thing is um, that it's uh, it still has a lot of those features, but it's infected by the partisanship more. But I profile in the book this thing called the Itasca Group, which is this amazing um, community leadership institution that's evolved there, where you have the leaders of you know Minneapolis-St. Paul is 19 Fortune 500 companies. So the leaders of these companies, the leaders of the philanthropic community, the leaders of the local education, the university and public school systems, and local politicians, um, they meet um, every two weeks. Um, under the brand of Itasca, which was this lake in northern Minnesota where the old elite families used to vacation every summer. And they, in a lot of ways, they run the state. I mean, they don't run it, but they really direct it. And they it. talk through problems and approaches and ideas. Exactly. And they do it, you know, when Tim Pawlenty, um wouldn't sign the transportation bill. It's a big issue in Minnesota because you got a lot of rural, right. you know, urban tensions. Uh, Itasca, which is Republicans and Democrats, I mean, they're all business and philanthropy. They, they got four Republicans to split off and sign it. Mm. And so um, don't mess with Itasca up there because mm-hmm. uh, they really believe in this. And their their symbol is a dining room table, a round dining where there are no sides. So in a way, your, your, your answer to these accelerating forces, these big, massive forces, yes. in some ways is to go small, not big. Absolutely. Well, the argument is that the, the proper political unit in the 21st century is not going to be the nation state. We still need it. We still need armies, a federal reserve with a currency. You know, we still need a national government to do social security, but it's too slow and can't adapt quickly enough. We still need, uh, oh, sorry, and the single family at the other end is way too frail against these forces, and too many are single parent. The argument of the book acts is that it's the healthy community that's close enough to people and adaptive enough in order to manage these accelerations. Mm-hmm. And it's what's going to have to evolve. Mm-hmm. And what I found in researching it, not just in Minnesota, but around the country, is there's an amazing amount of innovation there around this. Yeah. And in that sense, that goes back to your point about government as a catalyst. Exactly. And to bring together the business community, the public education institutions, uh, the local government, and the philanthropists mm-hmm. together. That is the coalition, I believe, that will govern most effectively in the 21st century. Well, I agree with you about the value of community, and I think I always yeah. say one of the reasons I so enjoyed um, being a newspaper man and working in a newsroom yeah. and campaigns Yeah. Uh, and now here at the Institute of Politics is to be surrounded by, by, by people exactly. and, and working together towards something. Who know you and, um, uh, you know, it, it, it so resonates with me what you said. Uh, you know, and I think of the Trump administration. And um, We were I, headed to such a nice, Yeah, I know, but I just want to say one thing. Right, I just want to say one <laughs> thing, you know, because friends of mine have, a couple of friends of mine have said, been asked to do senior positions. And um, called me, and I said, "These Republican friends." And I said, "Look, as a citizen, I'm begging you to take the job. <laughs> yeah. I'm begging you. I'm begging you to take the job." As your friend, here's what I worry about: I don't see a community there. What is the essence of a community? You know, I'd like to think if I make a mistake at the New York Times, they're not going to throw me overboard. I'm, I've been there 37 years. You know, I got a lot of friends there, a lot of equity in the place. That's, that's part of what a community is. We we cover for you, not 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 cover for a mistake. Everybody's but we, got everybody's back. Yeah, everybody's got everybody's back exactly. And I look at that administration, and I just think of that whole Kellyanne Conway thing with uh, Governor Mitt Romney, 
and um, how here she was sort of basically stabbing him in the back publicly while he's auditioning or being auditioned for a job. At their request. Exactly. Uh, yes. And so um, I see that. And, and what, what happens when you don't have a community? It was interesting. Well, it was just to say parenthetical, yeah. it was yeah. interesting about that. She was highly critical of him for the very tough things he said about Trump. Right. But she herself had run an anti-Trump for Cruz, for Ted Cruz, right, yeah. before she joined, exactly, Trump. exactly. So yeah. by that measure, she shouldn't be exactly. There. And and it's um, the, what what happens when you do that? And and this gets us back to Minnesota and St. Louis Park. Um, uh, you erode trust. Well, if people don't trust, if there's no trust in the room, people right. don't dare to try anything. Right. You know, I'll tell you a very quick story right. if we have time uh, uh, that I have in the book. It's about St. Louis Park, my little town. So in 2009, it's in the book. Uh, I think it was 2009. They decided they were going to be the first town in Minnesota to have free public Wi-Fi. So they contract out for a public Wi-Fi towers to be set up all over my little town, and it goes to a company in Annapolis. It's solar powered. Wi-Fi towers. They install it, and the system completely fails the first winter. The ice freezes on the solar panels. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a tough thing to do in Minnesota. Exactly. So they have to take it down. And I interview the mayor and the CTO and the town manager about this. They're all telling me the story. And the CTO, it's all in the book, but he he had a heart attack over this, Hmm. ultimately. But um, he said the day we announced it at City Hall, that we're taking it down, I went to lunch at the Harvest Moon Cafe near City Hall. And I walked in, and soon after I walked in, a guy came up to me and said, you're the Wi-Fi guy, aren't you? He said, well, yes, I am. And the guy said, too bad that didn't work. What are we going to try next? Now, that is the sound of trust. Mm -hmm. Okay. Compare that action, you'll know just what I'm talking about, to Solyndra. Right. Washington, D.C., on a much bigger scale, president tries something on solar. We fund, it's called venture, you know, investing. Uh, what is the reaction in Washington? Who can we destroy? Who can we convict? Right. How can we use this against the other party? It, everything that destroys trust is what we do. And so that's what, what makes St. Louis Park and all these healthy communities is that interaction between leadership and trust. And when that trust is there, you try all kinds of things. Yeah. And we're losing that. So I think of that Trump administration. I think if I'm in that administration, I just want to say one thing. If I try something and it doesn't work, is he going to tweet about me? Um, what if he tweets about me? He doesn't realize what he's doing. Right. I mean, the message is, am I going to get a tweet? Holy mackerel. Now, I'm not afraid of a tweet because I actually work for an organization that buys ink by the barrel. So uh, we we can fight back. We have, who have our own platforms. But if I'm someone who doesn't have that, I'd be terrified. Well, this, I'm sure, will be an ongoing conversation <laughs> over the next four years. But I, I, I fervently hope that we do lift up that sense of community yeah. and find our sense of national community again. Because it's still there. You see it every time. You know, every time, and this is the thought I'd want to end on, you know, in the few times, X over the last eight years, where Republicans and Democrats did get together on something, and um, uh, I, I can't remember the, exactly the few, but there were a few times where they got together. You could feel the mood of the country change. Yes. You could feel the mood of the country. I can tell you after the midterm elections in 2010, yeah. there was a, a large package that was passed in part That's because right. both the Republicans and Democrats were afraid about right. the group right. that was coming next. Yes. Uh, and a lot of significant things happened exactly. there in terms of uh, not just on taxes, but the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's right. and a number of other yeah. things happened in that period. And 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 you could see yeah, the mood of the country. Government moves at the speed of trust. You yeah. know, um, I didn't say that, but somebody smarter than me. But whenever you saw it, and what does it tell you? It, it tells you that really what the American people feel is we've been children of two permanently divorcing parents, and they're just always and and every once in a while when they stop, and they sit down on the couch and invite you in, you know, and they actually get something done. That's what people want. I don't think people want this. I don't buy it. I just don't know. Maybe that's the neat, naive Minnesota kid in me that I just can't get out. But that whole well, it's related up, to you know? all. It's related to everything else we talked about. Yeah. Because so long as there's a perception that things are out of control and that people are being let down, yeah. it is it is it is fodder for cynics and for worse who want to exploit that sense of And that's exactly, of, that's exactly, of that's exactly yeah. where we're at. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about this, uh, I'm sure, for 
for a long time, Anytime. and hopefully we'll 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 end up as one big St. Louis Park. Uh, but uh, Tom Friedman, the book is "Thank You for Being Late: An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations." Thank you for offering an optimist guide that's badly needed right now, and for uh, decades and decades of, of of brilliant work. Thank you. This was a real treat. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.